0: It is important to go to space, not just from an economic standpoint, in the long run, after all, most resources are out in space, but also from a safety perspective, a species is more resilient if it's in many different places, and if we can thrive in a very tough environment out in space, then we're going to be very hard to wipe out.
1: For Anders Sandberg, Senior Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford, it isn't hard to imagine what the world would be like in 2069. It's his job, after
2: all. I mean, I can't imagine what it will be like. So it's good that we do have some experts, the futurists, who can tell us this sort of stuff. And in this final episode of To the Moon and Beyond from The Conversation, we'll be making some predictions as well, exploring how the moon may be used in space exploration in 2069. That's 50 years from now, a century after the Apollo 11 moon landing.
1: Yeah, there have already been some pretty cool predictions made by science fiction writers. For example, the author H.G. Wells actually predicted the moon landings back in 1901.
2: But he also talked about a time machine which we currently don't have.
1: Well, you know, you win some, you lose some. It's like in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which came out just a year before Apollo 11. They imagined 2001 that we would just be going around in really fancy spacecraft, luxury travel. And we've not done that. But there were many other things in that movie that actually have come true.
2: But in this podcast, we're not dealing with science fiction. We're turning to experts from around the world to help us work out what the future of space exploration may realistically look like.
1: You're listening to To the Moon and Beyond, a podcast series in collaboration with different editions of The Conversation
2: Around the World.
1: I'm Miriam Frankel, science editor at The Conversation.
2: And I'm Martin Archer, a space plasma physicist at Queen Mary University of London.
3: Tranquility base here. The eagle has landed.
4: Roger I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe.
3: And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program, basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and at least as an argument of whether it's worth doing or not.
4: My wish is that this should be an international endeavor rather than a uh, necessary competition.
0: Spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. It's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species, but I also think this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity.
3: We have a liftoff, off on Apollo 11.
1: So in our last episode, we heard about plans to establish a base on the moon, potentially mining the lunar surface for minerals and even water that could be turned into rocket fuel.
2: But say all of the problems we heard about have been overcome, and we've established our base on the moon, then, you know, what is next? How could this help us travel to other parts of the solar system, and where should we go? These are some of the questions we'll ponder in this final episode of To the Moon and Beyond.
1: The first thing we wanted to know was why the Moon is seen as such a great place to launch missions further into space. It's such a popular idea that NASA, along with the Canadian, European, Russian and Japanese space agencies, are already planning something called the Deep Space Gateway, which is essentially a space station permanently orbiting the Moon that could launch missions to to Mars or even further. To find out more, our colleague Nehal Elhadi from The Conversation Canada sat down with Alex Ellery, an Associate Professor of Space Robotics and Space Technology at Carleton University in Canada, to talk about the benefits of launching missions further into space from the Moon. Ultimately, it's down to the fact that the hardest part of any space journey is getting a rocket through the Earth's gravity.
3: It's Earth's gravity that is the big headache. And in fact, there are two primary scenarios where we could exploit the much lower one-sixth gravity of the Moon. So scenario A envisages launching spacecraft from the Earth to one of the Lagrangian points, where the Earth and Moon's gravity balance.
2: Yeah, so these Lagrange points, they're the stable points where basically you would end up staying in exactly the same place relative to both the Earth and the Moon. And in fact, there's five of them.
3: And here, at this staging post and this is where the deep space gateway is supposed to be parked. Spacecraft can be refuelled with lunar hydrogen and oxygen launched from the surface of the moon. Once they're fully fueled, the spacecraft can then be sent to other locations in the solar system. Of course, this requires the ability to extract and store hydrogen and oxygen.
2: Remember we heard in previous episodes how oxygen and hydrogen can be harvested from the water ice we know is on the moon's surface. The oxygen and hydrogen can then be recombined to create rocket fuel. But Alex thinks a staging post like this is unnecessarily complicated. It requires infrastructure, including robots, to do the mining, and it also requires lots of other support from computers, control systems, and heaters, all of which will need to be delivered from Earth to the launch pads built on the moon.
1: Yes, and for Alex, this is what makes the Deep Space Gateway idea less attractive. And it's where his plan B comes in.
3: So why not build all this stuff on the Moon from lunar resources? So scenario B envisages building and launching spacecraft from the Moon directly to other locations. We don't need a staging post. In fact, there's a veritable host of useful stuff on the Moon. Iron, aluminium, titanium, silicon, ceramics reagents, regolith gases of various kinds, and so on, from which it is possible to build an entire infrastructure, and to do this robotically. This is how we get the true value of using the Moon as a stepping stone towards Mars and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, so he's actually saying that he wants us to build everything from scratch, from launch pads to rockets and just build it on the moon and launch it from there, needing nothing from Earth.
2: One of the other things to consider is the journey time from Mars to Earth. That's roughly six to nine months, and there's only limited windows each year that you can do that. Now, Nehal asked Alex Ellery whether going to the moon would actually save much time.
3: It actually makes very little difference in terms of travel time, launching from the Earth or the moon, because they're so close to each other compared to say the distance to get to Mars. However, it does take around 20 times less fuel to launch from the moon than to launch from Earth, which is a huge saving. In monetary terms, it costs around $20,000 per kilogram to launch from Earth to low Earth orbit.
2: But it only costs around $1,000 per kilogram to launch from the moon, because of the much lower gravity.
3: It potentially takes zero fuel to launch from the moon if we launch using electromagnetic launches. Which only requires solar electric energy rather than using fuel.
1: So, what's an electromagnetic launcher exactly?
3: Well, you know those maglev trains they have in like Japan? Yes. Right?
2: It's kind of like that, and also the proposed like Hyperloop that of yeah. Elon Musk. It's basically using magnets and electromagnetism to accelerate something to really high speeds.
1: Right, so we wouldn't necessarily need the Deep
2: Space Gateway. Well, Alex certainly doesn't think so.
3: The Deep Space Gateway is utterly pointless, in my opinion. It's a mere extension of the International Space Station. They're they're both unbold and boring. ISS was a useless appendage to Earth, unworthy of NASA of the golden era of Apollo. The Deep Space Gateway is just a porthole to stare at the Moon yearnfully,
2: He's also not very impressed with the Artemis program, the US plan to have people on the Moon in the next five years.
3: Artemis is just a rebranding of the Space Launch System Orion capsule program, which itself is to get astronauts to the Deep Space Gateway.
2: So Alex says that whilst we can get to the Gateway, we don't actually have any transport to go to the Moon and back again. So that's a real problem for using the Gateway as a way of getting to the Moon.
3: Artemis will likely morph into Apollo on steroids. Inevitably, when resources of money and time rear their ugly heads, they surely will, the program will be de-scoped to its minimal configuration, Apollo on a diet, even. After 50 years, we can only muster a feeble effort to attempt to match our predecessors. We've lost our spirit, our sense of adventure and our self-confidence. If the Gateway proceeds, it will probably be another 30 years before people go to the Moon, as it parasitizes every dollar to feed itself. We should be going direct to the moon's surface, because this is where the pay dirt is.
1: So the Deep Space Gateway must have some advantages. I mean, why else would they be doing it?
2: Well, I mean, it is the future of space exploration, you know, the the upgrade of the International Space Station with possibilities of doing the sorts of experiments that perhaps low Earth orbit isn't actually possible to do. So they are currently asking all of these space agencies for proposals on what potentially could we do in the various modules that it will have. I'm sure some really good answers will emerge.
1: Hmm. So maybe it would be better for science.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's not all negative. Alex agrees. He says companies such as SpaceX, you know, it's the US company owned by Elon Musk, which are building a new generation of rockets, they might be the ones who will truly make a difference going forwards, especially if they focus on the right things, such as returning to the moon with robotic infrastructure.
3: Not unnaturally, most effort at NASA and the private sector is focused on launch technology. Without this, of course, the moon and Mars are beyond reach.
2: Alex believes the crucial and undervalued aspect of all of this is the technology and robotics that can be used to exploit the Moon's resources.
3: They are the keys to the establishment of infrastructure and assets on the Moon with commercial prospects. And I don't mean just extracting water. I mean a full robotic capability of mineral mining and processing to extract metals, extract ceramics like alumina and silica.
1: Alex believes robots could be used for many things on the Moon. For example, they could do a lot of the tasks outside of the base on the surface to minimise the risks of radiation exposure for humans.
3: Accidents are also inevitable. The more manual work astronauts have to do, the greater the risk of injury. Again, this advocates the use of robotics for as many tasks as possible. And indeed, surgeons on Earth could also treat damaged or injured astronauts robotically. Robotics minimizes exposure to dangers and maximizes productivity. So, in my opinion, robotics is the backbone of any lunar surface capability.
1: While different people have different views about when we'll actually make it back to the moon and how, most academics that we've spoken to are confident that it will happen. So... What do we do when we have the capabilities in place to launch missions further into space? Where should we go? We spoke to someone who has strong opinions about this.
4: My name is Monica Grady. I'm Professor of Planetary and Space Sciences at The Open University. Places that I'd really, really like to go to are are the places where life might be. Mars obviously. Now we, we've we had several missions to Mars or even discussing a mission to Mars to bring some rocks back but the idea of sending people there, people to Mars it, it's still a long way in the future and Places like Europa and Enceladus and even certain parts of Mars.
2: So Jupiter's moon Europa and Saturn's moon Enceladus are unusual in the sense that they have huge internal liquid oceans buried under a thick sheet of ice. And they're heated by the gravitational tug of their gas giant planets they orbit.
1: Yeah, and it's in this water that scientists think that there might be life because there is evidence that the chemical reactions taking place between the rock and the water in these oceans produce enough energy in the water to actually support living organisms.
4: If I had to really pick one place where I thought there was definitely going to be life, a living life, all right, life still alive, I would say Europa because Europa has had all those building blocks, it's had all the ingredients, it's had plenty of time. I imagine that the ocean floor, Europa's ocean floor, must be a relatively stable environment. Mars, I think, may well have had life in the past, but I don't think that there's life there now. If there is, and and it's found and it's proved to be there, then I'd be hugely, hugely delighted, obviously. But I don't think it's going to have got much above the bacterial.
2: But the possibility of life means it could be risky to go there because we don't want to contaminate these places with our own
4: microbes. So you've got all these planetary protection rules and regulations about, well, we think there might be life there, Yes, we want to know if there's life there, but no, you can't go there because you might disturb the life if it's there. So it's just like, uh, right, okay. so we've got to try and really work around this and find out how the best way we can approach some of these really exciting ecological niches.
1: And so would the best thing be to send a robotic spacecraft there?
4: I think before you go anywhere in space, anywhere new, you have to send robotic missions first I think that just makes sense especially you know if you're hoping to bring your astronauts back again I think it just makes a lot of sense to be able to bring something back again before you try bringing humans so Hmm. send a mission to Mars bring some rocks back from Mars so then it shows you that actually yes you can take off from Mars again
1: I asked, Monica, how you'd actually go about finding life on another planet when that life is probably not going to be, you know, visible aliens walking around above ground. You know, in cold places like Mars, Europa and Enceladus, it's more likely to be some sort of microorganism that's not even visible to the
4: naked eye and something that's deep below the surface. Well, you can either, you know penetrate your way through with some sort of bullet type probe carrying instruments or you could try and melt your way through slowly. It's a question of, right, OK, what sort of instruments are we hoping to take there? But you have to be able to get down Under the ice for Europa. I think given Enceladus has has produced those plumes that seem to be material coming away from the inside of Enceladus at one Mm. of its poles, I think we maybe need to be sending probes more through those plumes and getting closer to Enceladus to actually look and see what's happening on those.
1: So that might be a good place to start to uh, have a, a spacecraft going through the plumes. But to get actual final proof, what would you need? Would that have to be like a picture of a little crab?
4: Wow, wouldn't that be marvellous? <laughs> <laughs> if you've got video footage of some, you know, little crab scuttling around on the uh, on Europa's ocean floor, then I don't think you can uh, argue with that, really. No. Well, unless people say, oh, it's photoshopped, oh, it's fake news, blah, blah, <laughs> de, blah, blah, blah. But you've got to have some trust in the integrity of scientists, obviously. So, so say you've got some footage of something like a, a crab or some tube worms or something that we think might be on Europa is ocean floor, mm. then that's it. You know, that's nailed it. But if you're just looking at fossils and trace fossils and bacteria and things like that, you can't just take it with a picture.
2: Yeah, there are some astrobiologists who actually try and imagine what alien crabs or worms might look like, given the conditions. I personally think it's all a bit bonkers.
1: Well, I mean, they do say that the way evolution works, any creature that is undergoing evolution is going to have sensing organs and stuff like that it might all end up being quite similar to creatures on earth with something like eyes something like tentacles and so forth so you know crabs might not be a bad prediction in fact let's make that a prediction there are crabs on europa
2: okay marianne Of course, there is the possibility that we won't find any life at all in the solar system and that would influence how we go about exploring it. It would be a lot easier to exploit its resources if we knew we didn't have to worry about contaminating an ecosystem in the process. That's true, but we
1: should be careful about exhausting the solar system's resources in the same way that we've used up the Earth's. And we actually had a story on the Conversations website recently written by Gareth Dorian at the University of Birmingham, warning that humans could exhaust the solar system's resources in less than 500 years if we're not careful. And that's based on something that scientists have calculated called doubling time. And that's how long it takes for any given quantity to double. You know, this can be money or any substance. And so in this case, it's the resources that we consume. So once we've reached a point where we have consumed one-eighth of the solar system's resources, or the moon's resources, it would take only three doubling times to consume the rest. And that whole time period could add up to less than 500 years.
2: Wow, that is pretty frightening. Of course, there are other reasons as well to exploit or at least explore the solar system that aren't purely financial, though. And this is what Anders Sandberg
0: argues. Spreading out and becoming multi-planetary reduces the risk of humanity going extinct. Unfortunately, these ones are not great business uh, reasons. They Mm. don't pay for themselves. You need a visionary who wants to support them. That's great, but uh, it only works as long as you have a very rich visionary doing it. It's much better if people say, oh, I'm going to make a living from this.
1: But what about our own planet? In 50 years, I mean, will we have messed up enough that it might not be as nice living here as it is now?
0: It's totally possible to mess up uh, the world, but it's very hard to mess up Earth so much that the moon looks like a nicer place. (laughs) It's worth recognizing that the problems we're currently having on Earth are not impossible to solve. Uh, It might seem very dreary when you read the newspaper, but actually... Many of the issues about transitioning to low carbon energy sources are well underway, and we can certainly speed that up. If we can actually build space uh, industry, that's a good start of making humanity much more resilient. And one of the good pieces of news here is that many of the technologies that are necessary for space are really useful down on Earth. We want, after all, to have better solar panels. We want to have automated factories that can take low-grade ore or just gravel or uh, recyclable material and turn them into products in an automatic fashion. That would be good for the environment on Earth too.
1: According to Anders, lunar exploitation may even help us get rid of our reliance on fossil fuels.
0: So one of the classic visions is that you should mine the moon to build uh, solar panels floating in space, beaming energy down on Earth. This would potentially be a really good energy source, except, of course, that many people are a bit worried about very big energy beams uh, coming down to receivers. What's to stop somebody from pointing them at people they don't like?
2: Like the other experts we've spoken to, Anders also says the moon is a first necessary step to colonising other planets.
0: So you would need to build quite a bit of what we take for granted on Earth. And this is, of course, a great challenge, but also the right kind of training project for actually becoming able to settle the rest of the solar system. If you can't survive on the moon, then you probably are not going to be that successful in other places either. Because the moon is a tough test, but it's also nearby. You get a lot of feedback. If something goes wrong, you can actually send things over within a few days from Earth. So I think uh, spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. It's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species. It's the thing we need to do in order to figure out uh, our environment and to do the proper science. But I also think uh, this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity. We actually need to have open-ended resources. Although Earth re- will remain the nicest part of a solar system for the foreseeable future, we can build lovely space habitats.
2: Yeah, this all sounds great, but
0: like really expensive.
1: Yeah, but Andreas is optimistic about making the case for investing in it, though.
0: In terms of cost-effectiveness, space is maybe not the, in the cheapest way of saving humanity. There are many other important things we can and should do down here. But it's not a competition. It's not like the space budget is always eating into the budget of the, you know, fixing the environment. In fact, they're quite complementary. One of the best ways of monitoring the environment is, after all, from space. As I said, building a closed ecosystems so or very efficient microagriculture, that's a great thing for Earth too. Becoming a multi-planetary
2: species does sound like total science fiction, though, doesn't it? I mean, surely... It won't happen in the next 50 years. I
1: mean, it kind of depends on who you ask, and Anders has actually set out a timeline.
0: If artificial intelligence and robotics moves as quickly as we do today, in 50 years' time, we would actually be able to do a lot of the work in setting up a moon base by using robots. It would be much easier, and it would perhaps be possible to happen much earlier. I think by 50 years time you could actually have a fairly large base but there is a great deal of uncertainty because all this depends on interest, what people want to spend the money on. Mm. But once you have that lunar base and actually know how to uh, do that well, then it's mostly a matter of transport to bring it to Mars, which is by no means easy, but we get getting the rocket room. After all, we got a Tesla almost getting to Mars already. Uh, people are better at building cheap rockets.
1: Anders thinks that humans could then be living on Mars or even beyond in between 30 and 100 years.
2: Sure, but going further than Mars, I mean, Europa is not going to be easy. I mean, it takes decades to even get there. And we're not going to have a base on, you know, say like Pluto anytime soon. That's true.
1: And Anders does agree with that. But he is confident that we will get there eventually. And the next step after that will be exoplanets. So that's planets that are circling other stars.
2: Yeah, currently we've got, you know, over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. Though what we really know about them is is kind of small because of the ways that we actually detect them. We can't literally see them because they're just too dim compared to their stars. So you're either looking for the ones that actually pass in front of the stars and cause a shadow, so we actually see the dipping of the light of these stars periodically, or we can actually see the stars being tugged by the planets as they're going around. So... Really, that means we're kind of guessing whether they are really like rocky planets or gas giants and things like that. But how can you like know that. that
1: based on how much they're being tugged?
2: Well, exactly. I mean, there's limited information you can really get out. So all of the artists' images and stuff like that are really pure speculation. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of guessing it based on what we know about the solar system, which is extrapolating really, really far ahead. So I don't think we should be setting a target to any exoplanet anytime soon, not least of which because they're going to take really long time to get to.
1: Oh, and how long would it take?
2: So the nearest star to us is only... 4.2 light years away. So even light takes over 4 years to get there. With current technology, we're talking probably like 10,000 years to get there, and that's just the nearest one. I mean, most of these exoplanets we found, they're actually on the whole other side of the galaxy because that's where the Kepler space telescope has been looking.
1: Well, amazingly, there are actually some people who are working on these far-flung missions though. Remember Frederick Moran from the last episode?
5: I'm an astrophysicist at the observatory uh, of Strasbourg, France.
1: Frederick is trying to figure out how to keep humans alive long enough so that they can actually travel to exoplanets.
5: It means very, very long distance, which is beyond the human life. So it means that you will have to find a way to keep your crew alive for centuries-long missions. And uh, some part of my work is actually to investigate if this is feasible in terms of biological terms, in terms of physics, chemistry, food production, and energy production, artificial gravity, and so on. So I'm currently working on simulations of multi-generational space travels in which a population will live inside a vessel and procreate, die, and the new generation will continue this cycle until the population reaches an exoplanet so this uh, multi-generational spaceship and the question that is brought by this kind of um, project very long-term project is actually based on the first steps of colonies and settlements both on mars or the moon but here your colony will simply travel in space and uh, this is probably the most easiest way we can consider long-term duration space travel without relying on a technology that we don't have yet. Something which is like a cryogenic hibernation, which is successful for keeping a human alive and then warming up uh, the human after centuries. This doesn't work yet. So a multi-generational spaceships and travels are clearly the way to go.
1: Well, would you be up for living your whole life in a spaceship, Martin?
2: I mean... Not really. I think as well, it's a kind of a bit weird that you're going to have to send a whole load of people and you're like, well, you know, in your lifetime, you're going to have to procreate with these people and then your children are going to have to procreate with each other. And it's a quite a limited gene pool, too.
1: <laughs> I'm just interested in how you'd actually get people to
2: sign up to do it. Oh, I'm sure there'd be people to sign up.
5: The ideal size for this kind of um, multi-generational spaceship is a few hundred people inside the colony, inside the vessel. A few hundred will make it resilient to most of catastrophes, but also it will, under strong social engineering principle, it will make the population healthy in terms of genetic health, but also in terms of consanguinity and so on. So clearly what we envision in terms of interstellar space travels using world ships is a world ship that contains at least, let's say, four to 500 humans.
1: But we don't have the technology to build a starship to go that far yet, do we?
5: Actually, this is a false idea. According to the research we have done, a typical starship like that would require several thousands of millions of tons of materials to to be created. But this is just a mechanical, it's engineering, just an engineering question. This is actually solvable. We on earth are already able to construct very large structures such as the Burj Khalifa which is the tallest building uh, on earth yet yeah? and this its dimension is gargantuan to us and now the idea is would be to create the same thing but in space it's going to be complicated but then you just have to recreate an environment in space where a human can walk and breathe uh, thanks to, let's say, oxygen production by plants and by also equipment, technological equipment. But you can also create artificial gravity by centripetal acceleration, and this is already uh, being tested on the International Space Station at, of course, small scales. But we are clearly not that far from building and create um, from the technology of this kind of gigantic spaceship.
2: I have to say, I'm not entirely convinced by that. I mean, most of the space missions we use are solar powered. Once you get further away than the gas giants, you can't use that anymore. And that's why we use like nuclear power. Not really sure if we should be sending a whole load of people on a nuclear powered spaceship. (laughs) As we heard in the last episode, the effects on the human body of prolonged exposure to space, not great. He doesn't talk about how we do that. So I'm I'm a little bit sceptical here.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly won't have happened by 2069, that's for sure. But according to Frederick, we will be well on our way by then to actually getting to exoplanets.
5: We create a settlement on the moon. I would say that half a century is also something which is realistic. On Mars, it might take a bit longer if you want to have a persistent settlement, and probably, let's say, between half a century and a century. And finally, if you want to explore a new solar system, so exoplanets and exomoons, clearly this is the goal for the next century. It would take at least 100 years.
2: So hundreds of people may be on their way to a nearby exoplanet in the next century. You heard it here first.
1: That truly would be, though, an enormous leap for mankind in the same sense as the Apollo 11 mission.
2: I mean, it certainly would be. I think it'd be even bigger. But sadly, this concludes the podcast series of To the Moon and Beyond. We hope you've enjoyed it.
1: I mean, I've certainly enjoyed it. And I think for me, the most interesting bit was to actually find out how crucial it is that we learn to live on the moon to go anywhere else. Because sometimes it seems like plans for Mars are kind of isolated and not dependent on that.
2: Yeah, and I think as well, it's been really interesting to hear about the current real plans that are going ahead hmm. and, and also some of the more wacky out there things that maybe we'll hear more about in the future.
1: Yes, indeed. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. Thanks for this episode also goes to our conversation colleagues Nehal Elhadi, Aline Richard and Zoe Jazz and for all our conversation colleagues around the world who have helped us put this series together. You can read a whole host of articles about the moon landings and the future of space exploration on The Conversation's website. Just click on the box To the Moon and Beyond on the homepage.
2: If you like this podcast, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. If you've got any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email. That's podcast at theconversation.com, where you can reach me personally on Twitter at Martin Archer. Or me at Miriam Frankel.
1: To the Moon and Beyond is produced by Gemma Ware and Annabel Bly from The Conversation. And sound editing by Siva Thangaraja.
2: And that is it from us. I'm
1: Martin Archer, And I'm Erin Frankel. And you've been listening to To the Moon and Beyond.